Hi, welcome to the On Becoming Educated podcast, where I, Paul Vu, will share my experience as a first-generation PhD student. I don't know how to start this episode, which is what I've been saying a lot in all the episodes that I've been recording this year so far. All I know is I've been exhausted. I've been sleeping like a log and waking up tired. People ask me how I'm doing and I have a hard time putting it into words. Numb, overwhelmed, tired. All of these things together. People ask me why I think I'm having such a strong response to a white man killing eight people in Atlanta, Georgia. I think the question speaks for itself, doesn't it? And then add in the fact that six of the victims were women of Asian descent, and also the suspect's admission of sexual addiction and his desire to get rid of his quote-unquote temptation. And also... You know, add to all of this the documented attacks on Asians and Asian Americans in the last year, and the coronavirus, and the election, and the last five years of living in a state of constant distress and fear about what's going to happen next. All I can really say in response to this question of why I'm having such a strong reaction to the Atlanta spa shooting or spa shootings is this. It's cumulative. It's not a one-time reaction. It's years of seeing violence. It's years of clinching, waiting to be punched in the guts. It's a gathering of feelings. Feelings that stacked over and over and over again until the foundation could no longer hold, until it cracked. The Atlanta spa shootings occurred on March 16th. I felt sick that day, and I felt sick on March 17th and March 18th and March 19th. I feel sick now. A couple of weeks ago, Charles Milton, who stars on the show Riverdale as Reggie Mantle, and in the film The Sun is Also a Star as Daniel Bay, was a guest columnist on Variety.com. And he wrote about his conflict with being half Asian. Milton is half white and half Korean. In his column, he speaks about how the rise in anti-Asian attacks in the last few months have awakened him. He wrote that he thought a lot about his mother, who is Korean, and these thoughts, quote, triggered something in me that I've long buried deep inside, a truth that at my young age, I didn't know how to protect her, and it broke my heart, end quote. If you would like to read his piece, I have linked it in the show notes, so be sure to um, check out the show notes. His piece continues to interrogate his role in perpetuating Asian stereotypes, and he ends with a statement about pride in his Korean heritage and his commitment to using his platform to speak out more about his lived experience. 
Reading Milton's guest column and speaking to several people who are currently waking up reminded me of my own return to my heritage. But my return was a longer one, one spread over years of observing educational institutions ignore students of color, years of repressed and neutralized emotions. Kathy Park Hong had a passage in her book, Minor Feelings, that ties in really well with Charles Milton's piece. She said, quote, one characteristic of racism is that children are treated like adults and adults treated like children. Watching a parent being debased like a child is the deepest shame. To grow up Asian in America is to witness the humiliation of authority figures like your parents and to learn not to depend on them. They cannot protect you. End quote. I omitted a few sentences from this passage to keep it short, but I definitely recommend picking up this book if you have a chance. I have a link to it in the show notes. Read together, Milton's quote and this quote speak to the damage that racism does on the parent-child relationship in America. Racism rips away the confidence a child has in their parent and themselves. Racism inserts itself into the fabric of this intimate relationship, shredding away hope and trust and dignity so that the parent can do little but bear and a child can do little but disappear further and further away from herself so that she could protect herself, so that he could protect himself. Worst of all, it leaves both parent and child feeling inadequate. Waking up means not only realizing all of what I just described happened to you as a child and perhaps continues to happen to you in some form as an adult and coming to terms with it all. But also realizing that you can do something about it now. Here's what I think about waking up. I think some people use the idea of waking up, of being uh, quote-unquote woke to feel like they're doing something, maybe even to feel like they're better than those other unwoke people. But the way I see it is, if you are still comfortable, if your life is still exactly the way it was before, then you might want to re-examine your wokeness because, I'm sorry to say, but your wokeness might just be a performance. Performance, for example, is calling something bad, but doing it from a safe, safe and comfortable space. Truly waking up means doing uncomfortable work, doing uncomfortable work in yourself, and then doing uncomfortable work with others. Truly waking up means owning your part in what is wrong as well as in what is right. My journey to consciousness included 
and includes uncomfortable introspection and uncomfortable action. It is ongoing. It is not a moment of waking up and then being woken forever and all times. It is daily work. And to this day, I still have a hard time speaking up when I see wrongdoing, especially when I see wrongdoing based on prejudice. Sometimes I blame my hard time speaking up for what's right on my height. I'm under five feet tall, so being so petite makes me feel very vulnerable. Sometimes I blame my hard time speaking up on my culture, on the way I was socialized to listen and obey more than to have an opinion. Sometimes I blame it on the failure of the school system, only to realize now that maybe the school system has always been purposely, systematically, sometimes in, sometimes not so much unconsciously failing kids of color like me, which is exactly what the hegemonic powers wanted them to do. It was and is all of these things, but it's also because I've spent so long not saying anything that saying something has become unnatural to me. I've spent so long turning away, shutting down, blending, hiding, all to protect myself from being the target of racist acts. That now, every time I want to turn towards, to speak up, to come out of hiding, to be different, to open myself up to possibly be the target of attack, it's a battle. And it's really a battle with myself. As an educator, I woke up slowly. Using diversity and equity work as a stepping stone to critical race work. I was in a Hmong student association when I was a college student bringing diversity to a campus that barely had any. I applied to work in programs where I saw a lack of representation, sometimes even becoming the quote-unquote local expert on low-income first-generation college students because there was no one else. After I earned my master's from UC Santa Barbara, I continued this work in higher education settings, hoping that my efforts to diversify the university to help more diverse students go to college to continue to support and provide representation for Asian American students would be enough. At some point, probably five years into working in higher education, I began to recognize this discomfort inside me when I was asked to do more than diversify, support, and represent. And the more discomfort I felt, the harder I worked to diversify, support, and represent. (laughs) Do you see where this is going? I stuck to what I was comfortable with. I performed wokeness and allyship and called it doing my part. 
And, you know, some people may say that I'm being too hard on myself. Others might say diversity support and representation work is work. It's good and it's necessary work. And I agree. But I also think in many ways it is not enough. And in, and so in, in some ways I think I was only partially awake while I was doing this work. I became more awake one day at a Hmong Student Association meeting at the university where I used to work. A graduating student said, I've been going to school here for four years and I have never felt seen nor heard. And I just remember thinking, four years? Four years without being seen or heard is a huge deal. Any staff or faculty at any institution should be concerned upon hearing this from a student. In my spare time, I began to create a program for Hmong students, a storytelling workshop series that incorporated pieces from Hmong writers, a space where we could discuss and recreate what it means to be Hmong in America. I began incorporating culturally relevant pedagogy into my work, centering the Hmong experience and developing not only confidence in Hmong students to tell their stories, but also helping them learn why they must be the ones to tell their stories. To help them learn that as a minoritized group, telling their stories on a mainly white campus and a mainly white community is an act of resistance. But even then, even deep in that work, I wasn't fully awake yet. I didn't fully understand the work I was doing. I didn't have the words then to describe what I was doing. And what I was doing was decentering whiteness. I was teaching these students to recenter themselves and their culture and experiences, to unlearn what American society had taught them and me was normal. I think I would have eventually gotten to this point, but I left for a grad school before then. And it was in grad school that I needed that last shake to undo the sleepiness of being marginalized, suppressed, and erased. Lately in my classes, I've been reading a lot about critical race studies, multicultural education, and culturally relevant and sustaining pedagogies. These terms can get all mixed up if you haven't read too much about them, and they may seem like they all have the same goal. The truth is they don't really have the same goals. Learning about different cultures in a multicultural class by eating different foods is not the same as learning about the power structures that keep one group in power while oppressing another group. Reading diverse literature isn't the same as reading diverse literature, using said literature to inform discussion on power structures, and taking some kind of action to make change. 
One of the critiques of multicultural education has been that it isn't radical enough. It doesn't affect change quick enough. It affirms students' cultures and exposes students to different cultures, but it doesn't teach them to become conscious of the systemic and structural powers that oppress certain groups of people. Culturally relevant and culturally sustaining pedagogy are intended to do this. Whether or not they do depends on the school and the teachers. I saw the movie Raya and the Last Dragon recently, and a friend asked me what I thought about it. The movie is sold as a fantasy based on several Southeast Asian cultures and boasts the first Southeast Asian Disney princess. I asked my friend if he wanted my Asian-American girl looking for herself in Disney princesses take or my critical race theory take. As the former, I was moved by this movie. I got all misty-eyed and sniffly at the end of the movie, knowing so many little Asian-American girls, especially Southeast Asian-American girls, were going to see themselves in the pantheon of Disney princesses. Finally. Using the critical theory, critical race theory lens, however, I saw the homogenization of Southeast Asia as continued oppression through capitalism, all in order to benefit Disney's empire. Homogenization, assigning different things, people's places, etc., to the same category, is a way of erasing identities, assigning new identities, and in doing so, making these things, people's places, easier to oppress. At least that's my take based on what I've been learning in my classes. What I'm noticing since I've been in grad school is that I'm slowly developing the knowledge to explain power structures and racism. And at the same time, I'm learning how to compartmentalize, how to let all my identities coexist, to be the little Asian American girl and the critical race studies student and the race conscious educator to see something like Raya and the Last Dragon for all its complexities and to be able to talk about it. But here's a little confession. On my journey to becoming a race-conscious educator, there is one thing that I have avoided talking too much about. Race. I know now that that avoidance is a mix of personality, internalized racism, socialization, oppression, minoritization, and a survival mechanism. Even as I study race today in my PhD program, I still sometimes hesitate to actually talk about race. I remember the first time I had to school a white man on Facebook about how business and race intersect and why boycotts and strikes can be useful in making businesses play their part in social justice work. My legs were shaking so much, I wondered if they were going to fall right off. 
then once I had to defend activism and Black Lives Matter on a dating app of all places <laughs> and stood my ground while my legs shook like jello. He was Asian American. I didn't back down. And I also said no to meeting in person. <laughs> I guess the, the point I'm trying to make is that the journey to becoming a more race-conscious educator has a lot of these uncomfortable moments, and there's really no way to go around them. If you want to affect change, then you have to go through these uncomfortable moments. If you want to be a true ally, then you have to go through these uncomfortable moments. In the last few months, as more and more racist acts against the Asian and Asian American community, especially against our elders, started to appear online, I've been trying to figure out how to navigate all my immediate emotions, as well as the knowledge that I've gained so far in my first year of grad school. I can center race and try to explain some of the historical and systemic factors that have contributed to these racist acts, including the previous president's contributions to them. But I'm also starting to realize that being a race-conscious educator isn't just about being able to explain the role race plays in society. That's part of it. But it's also about learning how to help our communities heal from the mass destruction race relations and especially white supremacy has done to our society. And that is the hardest part. How are we going to fix all of this? And I know that it can't be done in a day or even two days or even a year or even a few years. And I know that this isn't solely on my shoulders. But this is one of the toughest parts about fully waking up, realizing what the root of the problem is and knowing the solution is nowhere in sight yet. And I really think that's the key word right there, yet. I know there are a lot of people doing great work to move us forward, and we have moved forward before. Some might say we are in the middle of a movement right now. There is hope. I have to believe there's hope. I mean, that's why I'm that's why I work in education. And that's why I've always worked in education because I believe that there is hope. In the last week, while feeling all sorts of rage, I found that doing future-focused work has helped. Looking at my research with a future-focused lens has helped. Thinking about how my work will change the future has helped. As John Lewis said, ours is the struggle of a lifetime, or maybe even many lifetimes. And each one of us in every generation must do our part. And if we believe in the change we seek, then it is easy to commit to doing all we can. 
because the responsibility is ours alone to build a better society and a more peaceful world. A piece of art by the film artist Jess X. No has been especially helpful to me. I've linked it in the show notes so you can check it out. But I'll read the poem she wrote for that piece of art. In the future, our Asian community is safe. We no longer need to be memorialized because white supremacy is of the past. We are the stars, seeds, and motherland all at once. A force so expansive, no one can hurt us. Thank you for listening. Make sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or the podcast listening platform of your choice to be notified when new episodes are up. If you would like to support this podcast, a rating and review would go a long way. Podcasts with ratings and reviews are more likely to be found by listeners. So I would very much appreciate it if you can take a few minutes to rate and review this podcast. If you would like to make a donation to help me run this podcast, you can do so at ko-fi.com slash onbecomingeducated. That's ko-fi.com slash onbecomingeducated. Every dollar helps. Follow me on Instagram at bypavu and the podcast at onbecomingeducated. Lastly, to access transcripts and submit listener questions, go to www.onbecomingeducated.com.